I think we have an opportunity as a country to say that community matters, uh, that our the senior citizens in our lives matter, that our neighbors matter. It just requires us to think differently about who we are and what we do. Hello and welcome to The Next Big Thing in Health. I'm your host, Matt Isles, President and CEO of AHIP. The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by IBM. IBM has been transforming industries for over 100 years. That's why IBM Watson Health was created with the bold endeavor to transform health. IBM Watson Health is committed to helping build smarter health ecosystems. That means working with you to help you achieve simpler processes, better care insights, faster breakthroughs, and improved experiences for people around the world. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. Today, guest, Dr. Sachin Jane president and CEO of Scan Group and Scan Health Plan. Prior to his role with Scan Group, Dr. Jane was president and CEO of Caremore Health and Aspire Health. Under his leadership, Caremore built and scaled industry-leading programs to address loneliness, deliver hospital and primary care at home, and address the clinical needs of the highest risk, highest need patients. He's also published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and journals, such as the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Health Affairs. Sachin, you are truly one of the visionary leaders that we have in healthcare. You've done so much uh, during your career. Maybe we could just start with uh, a simple question, maybe a complicated one. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey into healthcare? What inspired you to pursue this career path? It's great to be here, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I uh, grew up with Indian American parents, or rather Indian parents. And, um, you know, when you grow up in, a, in, a, in an Indian household uh, in the 80s, there are really like two options. Uh, you can be a doctor or you can be an engineer. <laughs> um, I, went, I came home from college. I told my parents that I was maybe interested in being a lawyer. And my father said to me, you can definitely be a lawyer after you go to medical school. And <laughs> so uh, there was a, a, a bit of subtle programming throughout my childhood that led me into medicine. And, um, you know, it's one of those situations where I think uh, your parents sometimes know you better than you do. They, they knew that, you know, medicine would be a profession that I would enjoy. Um, but I was uncertain about it. And uh, it was only actually after I took a class with uh, Don Berwick and Howard Hyatt in my senior year in college that I really crystallized a vision for myself as someone who would both practice medicine, but also try to lead change within the healthcare system through policy, through activism, through uh, organizations, and so uh, went to medical school with this vision, and then uh, thought I would actually uh, do a master's in public policy along the way, but recognized at the time, I, I did a, a small research project with David Blumenthal when he was studying change in, uh, changes of, in health policy through the lens of the American presidency, and realized that health policy changed very slow in the country, and that maybe the organ, organizational level was the right place to try to make change. And so ended up going to business school and, uh, and then went back to finish my, my medical school, went to residency at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And then of course, President Obama was elected. And so ended up taking a leave of absence to go work uh, at HHS, first at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, then at um, uh, CMS where I was part of the founding team at CMMI, 
then went back to my residency and um, and have now kind of uh, lived a, a pretty you know wide ranging and diverse career in healthcare ever since. Wow, well, you've certainly learned from some of the best. I mean, that's a pretty impressive uh, track when you think about change in healthcare and health policy and, and really trying to make a difference. Something that you focused on throughout your career is, is loneliness, I know. And we know that there's been a growing focus on the health effects of loneliness, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. What concerns you most about this loneliness mental health epidemic? And what do you think that we can do to address this problem? I think to some extent we've overcomplicated it. You know, there's a, I, I never thought I'd be, uh, I'd be the one, you know, saying this out loud, but I think we've actually over-medicalized loneliness. We've turned it into a problem for health insurance companies and Medicare Advantage plans instead of recognizing it for what it is, which is really uh, a, a breakdown in our social contract and our social compact. Uh, 40 or 50 years ago, nobody really talked about loneliness. Uh, people really talked about the concept of uh, community. People talked about togetherness. People talked about uh, social activism and participation. And it was Robert Putnam, who was one of my professors in college, uh, speaking of you know, working with the greats, who, who actually wrote this you know, remarkable book, Bowling Alone, that showed the deterioration that we've experienced in American society because we've collectively decided that we were going to be more inward focused as opposed to community focused. And I think we're now seeing the downstream effects of that in the middle of COVID. We're seeing the costs that are being imposed upon us uh, coming from that. And so uh, I think we have an opportunity as a country to say that community matters, uh, that our, the senior citizens in our lives matter, that our neighbors matter. It just requires us to think differently about who we are and what we do. And so while I do think healthcare organizations like health plans and medical groups have a role in creating you know, more social capital in you know, communities and in society, I think we as a country have to take a big step back and ask ourselves, you know, what does social participation look like in 2020? It's not gonna be Facebook and Instagram, you know, Snapchat, those are all you know, fun tools. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that there's, the, the pandemic is teaching us that there's something really important about being together, being connected, um, being in the same space with one another, and that we need to find ways to do that more and more. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. I mean, what, what it does social participation look like in 2020? And, and in, your, in your opinion, how do we get together without it being on social media? Without I think everybody's exhausted of this by the Zooms. You know, we all started out kind of Zooming with each other in the beginning of this, and now people are just, you know, kind of exhausted of that, doing that socially. So how do we get together going into this, you know, winter that's going to be long and, and very difficult and have that connection and overcome that loneliness that you're talking about? Well, I think we have to have, you know, people who exist in cohorts that, you know, connect with one another in person. I actually mm -hmm. think that, um, you know, we have to get out of this phase, you know, recognize social distancing, you know, wear masks, but we have to have cohorts of people that we actually connect with and stay, stay close to. Um, I can just tell you on a personal level, uh, having just joined SCAN, uh, not having the benefit of actually sitting with the people of the organization, uh, I certainly, you know, fell into a little bit of a slump, uh, feeling like uh, I needed that contact, I needed that connection. And so, 
Uh, some of what we've done is we we now have meetings at eight or ten feet, you know, of distance. Uh, these are people that you need to have a high degree of trust with and connection with as we're trying to grow and and you know transform the organization. And you know, Zoom calls will not cut it. And so you know, I believe you need to wear masks. You need to maintain a social distance. Uh, but there is literally nothing like being in the same space as someone else. And I think we've stripped ourselves of that that perspective on our own humanity. And, you know, in many ways, there, I think there's going to be many positive things that come out of this COVID pandemic. And one of them is that we're going to recognize, you know, in a much deeper way, the value of connecting with one another, being in the same space with, them, with one another, and, and honor that for what it is. And I think as a society, we lost sight of that, actually, in the last number of years. The other thing I'll just tell you is, is we all have to kind of commit to thinking about a few people in our lives who may not have this, the kind of social connection they need to live a full life. And we have to reach out to them and we have to be there for them. Good point. I think, you know, and I think, you know, in my work in leading and creating the togetherness program at Caremore, one of the shocking realizations was how many people literally have no one. They don't have a single person in their lives who check up on them, call them. And it's a strange world when your healthcare provider or your health plan is the only entity that's actually checking up on you. And when somebody can pick up the phone and say, hello, Armando, and the reason they can do that with conviction is because Armando, the employee of Caremore, is the only person who's actually calling you with any regularity. We have a strange world. We have to take a look at ourselves in the mirror and say, how can we be better as a society? And that's where I think uh, we need greater political leadership, we need greater social leadership, uh, because we're not, we're not getting everything right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's such great perspective and such a true demonstration of how, you know, our, our industry is demonstrating that we care, right? We, we really do want to connect with people and, and those kinds of examples, while heartbreaking, right, we need to make sure that, that people do have those human connections. Um, maybe we can pivot for a moment to another topic that I know is uh, very uh, near and dear to you, um, and that's diversity in healthcare. Um, Right. We've been talking a lot about it. We've seen you know, some of the effects of um, lack of diversity uh, in healthcare. Um, how do you think that diversity is shaping the future of healthcare? So I think we need to stop seeing you know, kind of diversity as a checkbox. And we actually need to start seeing it as a source of competitive advantage and differentiation. Uh, when you look at you know, what companies are doing to serve diverse populations, they're just scratching the surface. And I think that we have to not only be competent in connecting with individuals linguistically, but we also have to be competent in connecting with them culturally. Now, I'll say a lot of what we need to look at are the rules and structures in place that may actually prevent us from wanting to serve diverse communities in the same ways uh, that we might like to. Um, I look, for example, at the Medicare star ratings, which you know, are a function of you know, member experience, they're a function of uh, provider performance and provider networks. And one of the challenges that I think we have as an industry is that you know, Medicare star ratings are oftentimes a function of how easy it is to serve a particular community. I mean, it's one of the dirty little secrets of our industry. And we don't have anything that rewards plans or rewards organizations for actually taking on harder and more complex patients to serve. Um, one of my passions, as you may know, is, is trying to think about how health plans can better serve 
homeless patients. Well, if I were to start a Medicare Advantage plan that was oriented around you know, individuals experiencing homelessness, we would have to have a different quality measurement system than HEDIS. Uh, you know, expecting me to make sure that a homeless individual actually gets a colonoscopy is a completely unrealistic notion because there's nowhere for them to do that colonoscopy prep. So the idea that we, we have quality measures in place that work for everyone um, is one that I think prevents us from actually serving diverse communities, ethnically diverse communities, socioeconomically diverse communities. And so I think one of the biggest things we need to do as an industry is take a look at the structures in place that may or may not uh, incent us to actually be really good at leading and serving diverse populations. And so, um, again, I see this as a source of competitive differentiation advantage. We're actually in the process of announcing, you know, a new vice president for business excellence and diversity, which is a new position, I think, in our industry, um, which is far less about driving DE&I, which is very, very important uh, as an HR concept, but it's actually more about looking at the patients that we serve, the people that we serve, the communities that we serve, and ensure that our membership actually reflects the diversity of the community that we serve and that we scan use it as, as a source of competitive differentiation as opposed to a box checking exercise. That's so important and so, I mean, that, that's such a great way to look at it. Very, very important message. I really appreciate you, you saying that. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions. Lynn, let's talk about the health inequities, which you just brought up there. I mean, I feel like that it's such a persistent problem and it's really come up so um, brightly with you know, with, with COVID, I think, and, and a lot of people are talking about these health inequities, which have been so persistent for so many years. Um, how can we solve this? I mean, it, it, I know there's no, no one solution, but what can we do to take action to be impactful and meaningful to start to break down these barriers, these inequities? Yeah, you know, my answer is actually pretty simplistic, which is we need more real leadership um, I looked at, you know, what happened with, with George Floyd, you know, a couple of months ago, and I looked across our industry, and I saw a number of really carefully worded PR statements that came from, you know, companies big and small uh, that said all the right things. But the question I had was, would the actions follow? Yeah. Would organizations start to make the strategic shifts that they needed to make to be better, to operate better, to be more just to their employees, to be more just you know, in serving their members. And I, I think that we're not necessarily um, demonstrating as much leadership as we should or could. Um, we certainly said all the right things, but I'm not convinced we're doing all the right things. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think we, we need to cultivate more leadership around these topics and themes. 
Uh, I think Ahab can play an extraordinary role in this, you know, going forward by not letting it fall off the agenda because it's way, it's, it's the expected thing to make this, a, you know, a topic of conversation after a moment of crisis, you know, like the George Floyd uh, death or, or murder, but uh, it's what happens six months later or 12 months later, or 18 months later, when it's no longer the topic du jour, when no one else is looking, is there still leadership in those moments? Exactly. And I would say, and, and I would say we don't have a great track record there, not just our industry, but our country. And so uh, that's the opportunity for us is, is for us to make a sustained commitment, not just the dollars and funds that were announced, but you know, are we changing the compositions of our leadership teams? Are we changing our recruiting practices? Are we going to non-traditional sources of talent? Are we building the pipeline programs at colleges and universities and graduate schools? Um, I can tell you I've been in way too many rooms where people have said, well, we've looked for diverse talent, but we haven't been able to find it. And the truth is, is you haven't looked hard enough. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, and I'll, and I'll also say as an industry, we have to have far more empathy across the aisle. I mean, there's this no more mantles movement, which I think is so important um, around creating gender diversity. But many of the folks who are kind of calling for no more mantles are not simultaneously taking on the issue of lack of ethnic diversity uh, and, you know, on panels. And so I was recently called out for participating in something with Will Schrank, as, uh, you know, from Humana, as, as well as Dan Mendelson, who's probably known to a lot of your listening audience. And um, I will tell you, I don't say no to opportunities like that because I believe I have this dual obligation to not just, you know, you know, represent my organization, but also to represent my ethnicity and my race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, while we can be very sensitive to the issue of mantles, we also have to be sensitive to the issue of, of wannels, as they say, uh, which are white only panels. And <laughs> again, I want to see us all have more empathy across the aisle. And, I, and I'll say, I'm not somebody who thinks every panel needs to be equally representative of, of society. I think that that's, that's kind of an unrealistic and silly concept. But we do have to look at the overall intent and the overall kind of notion of social justice and make sure we're not just looking at social justice for, you know, the group that I most strongly identify for, I identify with, but that we're actually looking at it for, for everyone. So it's leadership, not just having an agenda item, but actually taking action on that, on that agenda item, setting a goal and meeting that goal. That's right. Far too often leadership is really, you know, self-interest, self-interest presented as leadership. Uh, as opposed to self-sacrifice, which is sometimes what is required by by these different situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm glad that you raised the potential you know role for AHIP because we are thinking about that, and it has to be something that is meaningful, sustainable. And the other thing that I'll, I'll mention is beyond being action oriented, is um, we really need to hold ourselves accountable for how we measure progress, right? And being transparent about you know, where, what's our starting point and where are we trying to get to and what milestones are we meeting along the way? And are we, are, I mean, we may fall short, but like, let's be open and honest about it. Let's, let's look at the top 20 companies in our industry. Let's look at the composition of the executive teams. Let's publish it. Let's, let's look at the racial diversity. Let's look at the ethnic diversity and just talk about what we need to do as an industry um, to be more reflective of the population that we serve. Uh, to be more skilled in actually understanding the issues that, that different communities face. I, I think we can get better as an industry by actually 
embracing diversity as a goal, um, I think it's a source again of competitive differentiation, not not an obstacle necessarily. Can I ask you what uh, SCAN is doing in that regard? Have you set up those goals and those action items? We have, and so you know we've. We have a new position reporting directly to me. This is this vice president of business excellence uh, and diversity strategy. And this person's goal is not to be the DEI guru of the company, although that's part of the purview. The goal is to figure out how we can be better at serving diverse communities, how we uh, as an organization can identify, you know, we're in Los Angeles County. <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in Los Angeles County. We're in Orange County. Southern California is one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the country. But when I look at our membership, I will tell you, I don't think it's representative of the communities that we serve. Mm. Um, I think, you know, we've been a four and a half star plan five of the last six years, which I am super proud of. Um, but I want to be a four and a half star plan five out of the next six years serving ethnically diverse, racially diverse, complex patient populations. And again, I think we've, we've done a good job on those dimensions, but I will say in all fairness, my board recognizes this. I recognize it. We can be better at that. And um, so it's a huge strategic priority and it's something that we're actively working on. Yeah, yeah. That's terrific. Um, so when we look at some of the populations that have been most effective, we know that by COVID especially, I mean, health disparities to begin with and then disproportionately impacted by COVID, um, you know, African-American communities, Latino communities being hit hardest, um, how do you think we need to address and recognize racial disparities in the COVID-19 crisis? And what do we need to do today? And then how should we be thinking about it over the longer term? I think we need to use this crisis to learn. We need to use it to learn how to reach different communities. And um, we need to develop different communication strategies. Uh, one of my inspirations on this topic is actually a junior collaborator of mine. She's a second year medical student at, at Harvard. Uh, her name is Pooja Chandrasekhar. And what Pooja did early in the COVID-19 crisis is recognize that a lot of the information on COVID was actually only being released in English. And so she translated you know, educational materials into, I don't know, 20, 30 other languages to make sure that they were available. She's now had, I think, some million downloads of this, of this material. Um, the, it is not our instinct as organizations to think about all of the diversity of people and how they, you know, receive messages. Um, you know, I think about the African American community and the central role that the church plays. Well, you know, what is what is Scan doing to reach out to the African American church to actually, you know, church to African American churches actually to actually, you know, better reach these communities, uh, better influence the dialogue, you know, better, you know, create uh, literacy around around where to get care, where to get testing. Uh, so again, we have communication strategies that are wholesale, when in fact, as an industry, we need to be far more retail. And again, we tend to think about the world through the lens of what we grew up with and what we know. And again, this is why diversity matters, is if you have diverse leadership and you have people who are thinking about different communities, different populations that we need to reach, then we you know, ultimately will do that more. Um, and I think our organizations don't have those instincts and I think a lot of healthcare provider organizations similarly don't have those instincts. And so I, I do believe that we have to come out of this crisis with um, a new tool set, a new skill set around health communications, health promotions um, that, we, that we haven't had so far. 
Let me ask you about the vaccine and how you are talking to your to your uh, members about about the vaccine. And are you, I would assume that you're getting lots of questions from from some of your um, uh, members uh, about that. What what advice do you have for them? And um, as as people are are interested in in you know taking part in obviously um, getting the vaccine, but when we do have something. Um, should people take part in this? What, what, what do you have, what advice do you have for them? So what I will tell you is a senior only uh, health plan, one of the uh, great observations that we've had is we've actually had a very low rate of COVID within our patients. And yeah. I think it's because seniors recognizing how immunocompromised they are, um, often are, are taking all the precautions necessary. They're social distancing, they're wearing masks, uh, so we've we've been fortunate in that our membership has has seen extraordinarily low rates of COVID. Um, I will say I think it's important for us to balance you know the safety considerations on, around this vaccination with you know kind of rapid administration. But my encouragement you know will be you know for our membership once we do have a safe vaccination in place um, for everyone to get it. I think that is going to be the ultimate solution to this problem. But I will say. You know, we we do see high rates of compliance with kind of best practice guidelines from our members uh, because they they recognize and they accept that we are in the middle of, of a moment of great crisis. I, I wish more people were like our our scan members, honestly, uh, because they're all you know largely doing the right things and taking this pandemic as seriously as they should be. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a little bit concerning where we sit right now, thinking about heading into the rest of the fall and, and the winter. And that's you know, great, great advice. Sachin, you've been so generous with your time today. We always ask uh, our guests one final question, um, which is, what do you think the next big thing in health is? You've been a Forbes contributor since 2015. Do you think the next big thing in health could be something you've never written about? I think it could, I, 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 but I will tell you, I'll go back to a theme I raised earlier. I think the next big thing is real leaders and real leadership in our industry. Um, I'm optimistic. I, you know, when I look at the talent coming up through our industry and their idealism, their unwavering commitment to social justice, I think this next generation of leaders that is coming forth uh, is going to be transformative in its impact. And it's not going to just be one big thing. It's going to be a number of big things. Who come, that will come from you know, leaders who uh, have the right values and have the right orientation and are, are chasing the right things on behalf of uh, people who, who need them, so. Good, very interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, is there anything else too? I mean, in talking about loneliness, I'm so fascinated by that and, and because this is gonna be you know, drawn out throughout the winter. Um, is, there, is there anything else when we talk about the next big thing in health, that that is combating loneliness because we do have technology here. Um, anything else on that front? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, I, I've I've been in touch with you know a, a number of the entrepreneurs who are now working on trying to kind of make make uh, lemonade from this lemon, so to speak. Yeah. And what what I'll tell you is, I keep coming back to this basic idea that this is. There will be many companies that will do very well trying to trying to address this problem because again, I think it's become one of these boxes that we that many organizations feel like they need to check. Um, loneliness has found its way into that list of social determinants of health, and so everyone needs to check that they're that they're solving it. 
but but I will say um, I'm much more optimistic about the idea that as a society we are going to start taking better care of each other because we recognize now that we have to. Um, I think everyone's slowed down, right, Laura? I mean, everyone has slowed down and everyone is taking a look at what their most significant relationships are in their life, who really matters to them. And um, because we're not all doing the things we used to do, we're not getting on planes as much as we used to, we're not, uh, we're, we're not as bogged down by social commitments that are relatively meaningless to us. Uh, and so we're all taking stock of what's actually really important to us. And so I think, you know, the next big thing from that perspective is I think a new social contract, a new culture in our society that is going to be much more about each other than it is going to be about ourselves. And again, I'm, I'm an inveterate optimist. Uh, so, um, you know, some people will listen to this and say, this guy's crazy, but I will say, <laughs> but, but, but I, but I will say, I, I, I do see a path to getting to a place where we, we do have a, a higher degree of commitment to one another, which I think is going to be the real difference maker in this epidemic as much as I appreciate some of the entrepreneurial activities that are taking place in this space as well. I love how you think, and that is a great place to end this too. And especially with you being such a, uh, an expert in that, you know, area of loneliness, I, I, I really, really value your opinion on that and, and your words. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. It's always good to end on an optimistic note. So such yeah. thank you so much uh, for being here today. This has been terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health, brought to you by IBM. Traditional payer business models are under pressure. IBM Watson Health believes that modernization, collaboration, and personalization are key to evolving your business. That's why IBM Watson Health supports health plans in their business transformation by helping them break down data silos, drive value-based arrangements, improve care management, and engage members with personalized experiences at every touchpoint. Visit ibm.com backslash payer to learn how IBM Watson Health can help you accelerate change with data-driven solutions.